What's going on guys? Welcome to another episode of the Dreams to Reality podcast and today we've got a very, very special guest today. A guy called Elliot Turner, he's got a Facebook page called The Daily Life of an Addict and to be honest, if there's one thing I fully recommend, you ha- you have to check it out. And the reason why I wanted to reach out to Elliot is because of the level of consistency he has showed on this particular platform. And what I mean from that, and we're going to dive a lot more into it after, is the challenges Elliot has and the things he has to overcome on a daily basis. He is very open, very honest, and he, he's really becomes vulnerable to himself and everybody watching and everybody around him. And to be able to do that on a daily basis is absolutely incredible, and I admire it so much. So with that said, Elliot, thank you, my friend. Is this your, your, first, ever, your first ever podcast? It is, bro, yeah. Your first ever podcast. Yeah. Um, so be honest, right? I reached out to you on Facebook. I said, listen, man, I've seen some of your stuff. I love your work. Um, I want you on the podcast. What was your initial thoughts? And so, yeah, just, wow. Because obviously I had, um, not obviously, sorry. I mean, now watched, <clears throat> looked on your page and, yes, seen that you, you know, gone into schools and stuff. And um, that's something I feel really passionate about is reaching a y- y- younger audience. And um, yeah, I just felt really excited, if I'm honest, bro. So, the thing is with this podcast, it's, it's obviously an external external um, people doing it, for example. But when it came to your Facebook Live, you're doing Facebook Live now, you're in charge of it. It's just off your phone. So was that a bit more of a worry, a bit more of a concern? Because like, I remember when I first ever, everything I do, I film within house. So if I don't like it, I can always delete it. <laughs> However, I remember when I done my first ever kind of TEDx talk um, in Geneva. I done my first ever TEDx talk, and I was a lot more worried because in my head I was like, "God, if it goes bad, they're still gonna pull it out. If it goes good, they're still gonna pull it out." So I wasn't in charge of it. So it's about kind of learning to let go in a way. Was that a decision? Was that hard to grasp? Or was you used to it? If I'm honest, bro, I um remember sitting down with my therapist once, and he said to me what would little Elliot like to do and I looked at him and I screwed my face up and I said bro little Elliot isn't here anymore and I'm an adult now you know I'm I'm a father I'm a businessman I'm a boss I'm a son I'm I'm all these people and um, I don't have time for little Elliot anymore and um, he said why would you say that everyone's got an inner child so we started to explore around this inner child that I had. And what I found was, Cameron, bro, was that I didn't like construction. And, um, and that um, I would, throughout my 22 years in that prediction, I would like to um, start to give hope back, I suppose, to people who are suffering still. So I said to him, well, I would like to vlog. So I went back to him, and he said, how are your vlogs going, brother? And I said, well, they're not. And he said, why? I said, well, who's going to want to listen to me? Like, there's millions, there are six million statistically addicts and alcoholics around the world. Why do I think I'm so special? Mm. And he said, he said, do me a favour. And I said, go for it. He said, turn your hands over. And I said, what do you mean? He said, turn your hands over for me. He said, now try saying that again. And the way my face was and how I 
talk to myself and talked it out with my foot and palms facing up. Yeah. It didn't work. So then he said, so then I realised that to myself, okay, well then maybe maybe I could have a go at vlogging. And then there's a thing that you just said. I was like, what happens though if I get it wrong? What happens if like, I can't cut, I can't edit, I don't know how to do all this stuff. And then then I felt it. It's called, it's what I identify t- t- today, it's called fear. Yeah. And fear isn't real, bro. It's the lies and the dialogue I tell myself. And that's, I find the problem not a problem. And it's like what it's like. I think it's what. What's the worst thing that can really happen? You know, what is the worst thing that can happen? And for so long, I wouldn't release any content or wouldn't do anything. Probably out of fear again, because I was trying to make everything look perfect. And in reality, let's be honest. The first ever live video you're gonna do, it's gonna be crap. The first ever video you do is going to be crap. The first 20, 50 podcasts we do are probably going to be crap. But the only way you can get better or, in my opinion, sometimes face, you have to face fear. Yeah. And you have to try and overcome it. Because when you get an opportunity again to go on radio or to do anything like this, you're, you've done it once and you're just building yeah. up that type of experience. And for now, it's just about getting it out. Because do you know what? In five years from now, we might look back at this podcast or a particular something you've done and laugh at it and go, wow, look at me. But then you, you, can, right. track, you can track your journey. Yeah. But the back, back to you, right? Daily life at Addict. Um, why? What does that mean? Just take, take us back. So the daily life of an addict. Mm. How, was your, how was your upbringing? My upbringing, my upbringing from the age, you know, from when I was born right till up until I was sort of 13, and I've described it before, and it is, and it was, and it is a Disneyland upbringing. My real mum, she was uh, just, yeah, amazing. My dad was amazing. We had a, or I had, sorry, a great childhood, um, like a picturesque sort of childhood. And then I t- turned 13. Um, my mum and dad had split up. Okay. And um, Was that out of the blue or did you see that coming? It was... Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't... Yeah, yeah, out of the blue. Wow. Out of the blue. And um, so at the time, I didn't feel it impacted me. And at the time, I was really, really close to my real mum. Like we were like best friends, uh, and so we played this thing where we called it good cop bad cop. So my younger sister and older brother, my older brother's um, autistic, um, um, so doesn't know how to form relationships, um, or didn't know how to form relationships properly. Bless his heart. And my younger sister, she was four years younger than me, and I always looked at her as my daughter. Okay. So I was sort of superseded into that role of father in the house. Yeah. And I felt an adult. I felt cool. I was like, wow, you know, my mum has recognised that not only are we best friends, but at the same time, you know, uh, Elliot's has a way with talking. So the good cop, bad cop. So if my young sister and older brother, you know, and myself included, um, if we were naughty or argued, my mum would tell them off and then I would go and make the peace. Okay, I got you. So, uh, at the same time though, what I understand now is, and it's not anyone's fault, Cameron, it's just the way it is, is that if I look back now, yeah, it's um, that's where my addiction started because I lost the nurture 
from my mum and I got the nature. Okay, so you're you're essentially saying so I'm assuming your dad's left at this point. Yeah. So you're essentially saying that you had to step up, be the man. Yeah. And because of that you missed so many kind of um young, important years of your life and stuff. Yeah. I'm the same, bro. My mum kicked me out when I was eleven. You know, I live with my dad, my nan, and yeah, it's just I was my dad was working away a lot. I was forced to step up, man. Yeah. And now it wasn't until once again, when you're younger, you don't really recognise it, do you? Because um you as a children you're quite resilient in a way. Right. You're quite resilient and sometimes they say ignorance is ignorance is bliss and probably around that point it could be. Yeah. Um but it's only now until being in my late twenties, especially over the last two or three years, having a wife myself, having kids myself, um, I've started to actually understand some of my behaviours. Mm. Especially anger and my emotions and I'm actually quite sensitive and it's yeah. all it's all kind of led from that if I I, I believe. Yeah. So anyway, you're, say, 15, 16. Do you still see your dad at this point? So it was on and off when we flickered in and out of each other's lives. Um, again, you so know... So you've gone from everyday seeing him... To to mm. nothing really at all. So wow, he, he that's, that's a lot, man. moved from Cheltenham over to Winchcombe. Um, Where's Winchcombe? Winchcombe's about... Is it far from Cheltenham? Uh, about half an hour. Okay, still, yeah. So, yeah, and at the same time, they're at 13. That's like leagues away, right? Yeah, you can, you can can't. 10 minutes away, yeah. Can't get yeah. to it. And um, so, um, what I look back on now, um, and I can understand it better, and again, I don't say this because I have resentment. I just say it genuinely because I hope it helps someone somewhere, Cameron. Yeah. And that is that my, my real mum, you know, she... She had resentments, you know, towards my dad. Um, and for me, I don't know about my younger sister or my older brother. I know, though, for me, that I felt that my dad wasn't promoted at home. Um, and I remember sitting down with my with my real mum about, I think, maybe about 10 years ago now. And I asked her why, you know, that she was quite um, derogative uh, around my dad. And she said, you know, that, um, son, I was I was scared of losing you kids to him. And that's why, you know, and she was angry at him. So, um, bless her, and I don't mean that in a patronising way, I mean it, you know, in a compassionate way, yeah. that she couldn't separate, I identified today, she couldn't separate her relationship and how she felt about my dad from um, my relationship with my dad. So he, so I then grew up then, feeling like um, I was being disloyal to my mum if I ever came back and said I had a great time with my dad. Yeah, I got you. I felt um, I felt guilty because I knew how much my real mum loved me, and I loved her too, and I understood at that age that love was loyalty, and you stayed loyal no matter what, even if you didn't agree with things, and. In actual fact, then I suppose that wasn't the whole reason. It, so at the same time, it was a contributory factor to why I then developed this singular thinking, and I wasn't able to express my feelings and emotions about how I really felt about dad because my mum made it clear how I was supposed to be feeling about my dad. And like I said, bro, I don't say that to harm her. You know, I mean it because that is 
exactly what happened for me. I don't know about my young sister or my older brother. And at the same time, they they weren't superseded into that role of being father in the house. So they Mm. wouldn't have the same upbringing I did, I suppose. Everyone's got different perceptions. Everybody responds differently. And everyone's got, you know, we all think or act or, you know, differently to any type of situation, even if it's the same situation, you know. So however you understand it is how you understand it. And if it made you feel a certain way then you're entitled to feel that certain way, you know. It doesn't make you a bad person, and it's also quite honest for your mum to um, be open and honest as well and tell you where she was at because she was probably going for her own problems, her own challenges, and just like anything, she's bringing things from what she was raised with, all her problems, all her insecurities, all all of that is also being shown in her day-to-day life, you know. As you know, at the age of thirty-six, you're like we're just bigger children, man. Yeah, we are just bigger children, literally. Yeah. you know, we we don't have it worked out, and we always constantly look at our parents to have things worked out. But as a matter of fact, is they're still learning themselves. You know, mm, that's interesting, bro. You know, when you say that, mm-hmm, because it, um, I have a thought now in my mind, and I was watching something on social media the day, and there's uh, a guy. He's a motivational speaker. Like you, and um, I bet he wasn't as good as me, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's an awkward, yes, he was. <laughs> I can't say anything, he's just different, right? <laughs> and um, he um, he was talking about um, as children, we have these r- r- rose tinted glasses when we look at our parents, yeah, we see capes. You know, flow fl- flickering behind them. We see the masks on. We think they are Superman, Superwoman, the Hulk. Um, you know, Spider Man. All rolled into one. Yeah. He said, and then what happens then is that when we grow up, and uh, he did like a visual thing, where a sixteen-year-old boy then who was six, you know, viewing his mum as a superhero, when he gets to sixteen, he then goes to his mum and asks her for some money to, to buy something and she hasn't got enough to give him and it almost it's almost like a massive lead weight is dropped on his foot and he and he feels pain in here it's like well you are supposed to you've always been my superhero you've always had all the mm. answers for me mum what what do you mean you haven't got enough money what is that all about yeah. he said and he said and if we all just exercise a little bit more of uh, an actual fact, uh, we're human, we're not superheroes, maybe our children would grow up emotionally healthier, where they would feel then that there's a balance of, um, yes, my mum and dad, they are my hero, they're not necessarily a superhero though, and you know what, that's actually okay, so yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. So, man, talk to me. You left school? Left school. What did you do then? Uh, left school. Um, my mum, she encouraged me to go back for one year retakes. <laughs> I finished GCSEs. I had 11 GCSEs I came out with, so it's pretty cool. I failed in master. I got an E. And this time I was taking drugs. Just started to take marijuana. Um, what, uh, about 15, 16, 17? Yeah. Okay. And, um, so I, um, she encouraged me, really encouraged me, and I'll be thankful for, for her, always be thankful for her to this, to go back and do one year retakes. 
So back in the, when the retakes and took masks again and came out with a U. <laughs> ungraded. The worst is even worse for it anyway. So I came <laughs> home. So you did a whole year <laughs> and you still got a U. It was even worse than the year before. But, not but sorry. So that that's how much <laughs> drugs had affected my brain. I wasn't interested in school. Anyway, I came out and then I remember coming home. Um, my mum looked at me and she said, okay, son, so what are you going to do? And I went, well, I don't know, maybe just chill for a bit. And she went, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. You're either studying in school or you're going out to work. And I was like, well, I don't like anything, mum. And she said, that's real life, son. No one likes wow. what they do. Wow. That's deep. So I went into, um, yeah, using drugs, selling drugs on a very small scale, you know, to friends. Just weed? Just weed, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and basically being a nuisance and then getting into crime, um, hanging around with the wrong groups, the wrong crowds. And then I got into football hooliganism as well as a young young man. Supporting who? Uh, Ch- Cheltenham. Okay. Um, and it was more so uh, a, f- a family member that I got involved with. Mm. Um, yeah, and he was uh, part of Millwall's firm. Um, I I remember uh, he was uh, flagged up on Panorama one night um, and soccer. Uh, we're a newly um, organised police department to battle football crime. Yeah. And um, it, he was apparently... I mean, I, I never saw it. I just heard about it. He was flagged up as um, as a headhunter for football organised crime. And he was on the top ten wanted list by soccer. Wow. And um, so that became very attractive to me. You know, because uh, he was cool. He was in control. You know, everyone feared him. Um you know, uh, so I sort of followed in his footsteps and I looked up to him. Um, you know, he was my hero. Wow. He was my hero. For how long? So when you're getting involved in kind of a little bit of crime, being a football hooligan, taking drinking, I guess, still cannabis, or, or did the drugs elevate a little bit from there? Yeah, elevated. It went from marijuana to ecstasy. And then from ecstasy um, on to uh, speed, and then from speed to cocaine. And cocaine was just like a done thing. You know, I would hang around with a certain group of of men, you know, and then we'd be in and out of the toilets and displaying passive aggression, Mickey taking violence. It was just the way that it was. I didn't know any different. So how old was you at this point? 16. 15, 16, and that went on till uh, my when I was 21, and I got into a real bad way with drugs and alcohol. And um, I thought to myself, well, there was just one occasion where I had gotten into an altercation with a neighbour over the road, which who I was selling drugs to at the time, and um, I went over with a baseball bat. Went over the baseball bat and it got out of control. 
this my neighbour, I he ended up he ended up sustaining uh, an injury, head injury. So I went to court, um, and through the skin of my teeth, uh, I well I remember my um, barrister solicitor said to my mum to ask Elliot to bring the the basic essentials because he could be looking at five years. Um, and I, for the grace of God, I mean, I'm not proud of it, you know, and I still have yet to make my amends, um, and say my sorry, you know, to this person, uh, and anyway, so I didn't go down, I was lucky I came out. How was that whole feeling, thinking that you was going to go down? If I'm honest, bro, this is the sort of person that I was. You didn't really care at the time. I remember walking out of that courtroom, brother. And my mum was in tears. My sister was in tears. Everyone was just, just like, obviously, just in an emotional wreck. And my mum mm. looked at me and she said, um, now, sweetheart, have you learnt your lesson? And I remember looking at her and I said to her, if I had my time again, I would make sure that I killed him. Mm. Like, I didn't, I didn't do enough damage. Yeah. I got off the skin of my teeth at the same time wow. and I wanted to kill him and that was because that was egotistic that was powerful that was control so could you argue that prison would have been good for you at that time or do you think it would have sent you on a worse loop because I guess you could have got involved in stuff within prison or do you think it could have been a wake up call knowing who you are and what you yeah. probably say even say five years after that do you think that would have helped you or do you would it have served you or would it have just destroyed you even further? Uh, do you know what? I really don't know, bro, if I'm honest. Mm. It's hard to say. I'm just I'm just yeah. thinking, you know. No, I, um, that was like um, 1920. And then I think, I mean, I didn't go to prison, thank God. Uh, what I did do, though, is then as I, you know, I think it took about another six months. Things deteriorated. And then I stepped back and I remember sitting with myself. Uh, I think my, if I remember rightly, my mum said to me, if you carry on the way you're going, you'll end up either in prison or, or, you know, or worse. And I thought to myself, I need to do something about this. Um, so my mum took myself and my brother um, down to the Army Careers Office on the Gloucester Docks. And I signed allegiance to the Queen that day. Um, and then I, I joined the forces. Um, so in a, in a way, the forces it did it straightened me out. Holy shit! So you was what consistently taking drugs, in and out of some crime. Obviously, you had a the big incident what happened, and then six months after that, your your mum said you're going into the army. Um, so how long did you go in the army for? I went in mentally for a lifetime, and um, uh. In real time, I was in there for two and a half years. Wow. Uh, so when you say mentally a lifetime, what do you mean? Like, I remember bro, watching um, uh, adverts on TV, you know, where Chinooks mm. were going over the top um, or they were, they were um, uh, attack uh, helicopters, you know, with SWAT teams dropping out on on, on yeah, ropes yeah, and stuff. Yeah. I remember looking at it and it said Marines Commando be the best. And I remember my heart racing and I had tingles around my body and thought, "Self, that's that's a bit of me." 
that's who I would like to be. So mentally, I joined the forces for a lifetime. That's who I would like to be. And I felt, um, uh, I mean, I don't know if anyone or if you've watched many Bond movies. Um, um, he says in one of his clips that he's motivated by his duty. And I don't know, for me, I just feel this, this or had felt and still do, I suppose, to this day have felt that, uh, that, um, that love of protecting I'm like that I suppose would like to protect and help so I saw these soldiers dropping out of helicopters and stuff and running around with guns and everything and I also saw then the protecting side where they were going to protect our country even though if it meant losing their life and to me that was the ultimate Mm. so I joined the forces mentally what I didn't foresee and I didn't know, brother, was that I was an addict. So when I went over to Afghanistan and served over there for nine months and came back, I used cocaine and alcohol straight away. So um, when you was over there, you didn't use anything? Nothing. So you was clean and then you come back over here and then you jump straight back into it? Yeah. And then I went back after two weeks R&R, which is rest and relaxation after the, after my tour, after the Forces tour. How was that tour? Was it what you thought it was going to be? Was it a lot harder? Does anything live Does anything live with you still until this day? There was, there was a time, I remember, and it, I wouldn't necessarily say it haunts me, at the same time, though, it's always with me, and um, so I was doing. Uh, I had, well, I went away. We did six months, and then touched back, touched touched down back here in the UK for two weeks R and R on a C seventeen uh, aeroplane. After two weeks R and R, I went back over to Afghanistan. Um, a depression descended. I just felt so low. I was like, I'm back here in this this terrible place. And uh, luckily for me, God, I believe, or whoever it is, I put in my path that I didn't go back to my own camp. I was assigned then as a driver to drive around and do um, vehicle patrols and take generals um, and top brass personnel for, for, for meetings and stuff like that on a CFC Alpha camp, which is an American base. So when I got over there one weekend... Um, my the Lance Corporal looked at me and he said, um, you know, it's a Sunday afternoon, let's take take the, the army vehicle out for a drive. Um, Turner. So I said, Okay, cool. So, you know, it was literally he was like the same age as me at the time, maybe a little bit older. We were like twenty two, twenty three years of age. So he was a one stripe Lance Corporal and I was a I was a private. And I remember it quite vividly and we were r- racing down um the dual carriageway. And the rain was uh, bouncing off the floor. It was hammering it down, bro. And the windscreen wipers, I was only getting seconds of visual. And the windscreen wipers were on full blast. And the windscreen wipers cleared. And I saw these two Afghanistan locals on their push bikes. And I smashed on the brakes. Of course, the vehicle lifted and it aquaplaned. So it accelerated. And it, I hit these two Afghanistan locals and bro do you know like it I feel so shameful over it they they should have had capes on because these guys flew I thought I killed them 
And um, so I got out of the vehicle and I was, you know, upset. At the same time, though, you know, I just went straight into reaction. And I got out of the vehicle, debussed and ran over. And I was like checking him over like, are you okay, are you okay? And before I knew it then, within a minute, and I felt a tug on my shirt and another on my collar. And before I knew it, there was a crowd of about 30 people around me and they were all pulling at me. They were essentially trying to strip me. And then I felt this massive like overbearing pull on my collar. And Lance Corporal pulled me back. And what he'd done is he butt-stroked, turned his rifle around and hit people in the faces, in the bodies to try and get through the crowd to me, pulled me out and then he threw me into the into the vehicle and he said to me, drive. And at this point, there were locals all over the vehicle. They were on the bonnet, they were on the top and they were starting to strip the vehicle. And then I said, I can't drive, there's people in front of me. And he said, if you don't drive now, we don't know where we're going to be. And this time, I think it was around the time of the beheading of Ken Bigley, yeah. the reporter. And he said, just drive. So I put my foot down. And I don't know if I ran over anyone, if I killed anyone. I can't remember. What I remember is, is my adrenaline was going like this. Anyway, he was navigating me to the nearest British checkpoint. And before I knew it, I had looked over my right shoulder, bro. And I spotted a vehicle. It was racing at the same rate I was. And I looked over my Lance Corporal and said, that vehicle, bro. And he said, that's AA. It's an A&A vehicle, it's Afghan army. He said, put your foot down, Elliot, now. So I was like, well, go as fast as I can. And anyway, over the space of a mile, we picked up three A&A vehicles. Is that not good? Are they bad? Yeah, they're Afghan armies. Okay, so they're not like people who works with you. Sometimes you get like local armies who work with you, don't you, or whatever. Yeah. So it's actually the enemy, essentially. As it was as we thought at the time. Yeah. And then I heard this. Yeah. I was like, what is that? And I looked up and there's a chopper. And so, so we were being chased, essentially. Anyway, we got within... Uh, say 200 yards of British checkpoint I could see it and I looked at my Lance Corporal and he said put your foot down and I don't know if you've ever seen the, I'm not trying to glorify it this is just how it was there's a movie called Patriot Games okay. where they get shut off uh, government officials get shut off on this one way street either end and that's what happened to us the A&A vehicle pulled up they all debussed they got out with their guns Behind us, we got blocked off. So the only thing to do was debus, which means that we exited the vehicle. And my Lance Corporal said, cock your gat, you know, this is it. So we switched to automatic, and I was screaming. These Afghan army guys were screaming at us. And uh, again, I don't know how. I don't know how this happens. Wow. The, there was an American general then who got out of this not a general, but American top brass guy, got out of the back of this Afghan army vehicle and he walked into what we call dead man's land, which was the face-off between us and the Afghan army. You know, I was screaming, my corporal was screaming, they were screaming. You know, we were that close to gunfire. Yeah. A shoot, a shoot. And he walked into the middle and he was waving his hands and he said, stop, guys. And I heard his, heard his, heard his American voice. 
and he said, please lower your guns. And I looked at my corporal and he said, switch to single fire. So we switched back, put our weapons, like, you know, slung our weapons down by the side of us. And he came out and he said, we are, um, and we are um, doing RTAs, road traffic accidents, and documenting it. And we need your details. So what happened is then we gave our details over and then the two vehicles pulled off and away and then we drove then to this checkpoint, British checkpoint. When we got there then, you know, um, and I don't say it in an egotistical way, I don't mean it uh, like this at all. At the same time, though, it makes me feel like a quiet pride today where the corporal then, um, as I was driving through the checkpoint, he put his hand on my arm, tapped it and he said, well done, Turner for driving aggressively getting you and your mm. corporal back and it's I suppose you know I didn't really think about it like that it brings up a, a lot of emo emotion that's deep man that's deep bro honestly yeah. so wow I'm just trying to so though basically what did those people crowd you because you were just a part of the army, the the rivals, or was it because you just knocked these two boys down or whatever it was? I think, you know, if I'm honest, 90, 99% of the Afghanistan locals that we met, bro, they were, we were like superheroes wow. to them. You know, we played with the children, the footballs, we stopped and talked to the locals, they, you know, we loved them as much as they loved us because yeah. we were there to, you know, to help police their streets eff yeah. effectively. And I suppose when the two guys, you know, were on the floor, yeah, you know, they did. They were angry and, yeah. and rightfully so, because I was, I was reckless. Yeah, you know, and I sh should have been. So what happened yeah. after that, then, bro? You got back. So I got back, um, and then yeah, I. I remember getting back and using alcohol and cocaine, having a massive party. It was like a massive celebratory party. It was another private, a good friend of mine who I've recently connected with. Um, and him and I, you know, we had a party with lots of family and friends. And um, uh, I used cocaine and alcohol. And then what happened was then was that uh, I went back then to camp uh, two weeks later and they pulled me up on a CDT which is a compulsory drugs test. And um, at that time, it was taken, it was being taken over by a new, a new, a new CEO of the company. Um, and there was a zero drugs tolerance policy. Um, and um, he said, basically, you know, I was marched in front of a load of top brass. And, you, you know, basically it was just said, you're, you're out. Um, have you got anything to say? And I just cried and said, I'm sorry, you know, and please give me another chance. And they weren't interested. So for the next two weeks, I was marched around the camp in an orange jumpsuit, spat at, swore at, threw fruit, rotten fruit, eggs at. Um, yeah, just, it was my family who I had befriended, who I'd made relationships with. Everyone just turned their backs. And wow. it was traumatic, man. Very traumatic. But surely you wasn't the only one taking drugs. Drugs is rife in the forces. And there was a the thing that we used to say in the forces. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Ah, uh, got you. 
so if you were in with a certain clique, you, you know, you wouldn't be grasped on. I think, I think for me, if I'm honest, I never really fitted in. Yeah. N- not to sound egotistical, I never really fitted in because I sh- shone too brightly. People didn't like that in there. It was very much of know your place. You're a squaddy. Um, we had a thing. Or not we. They had a thing where they called us crows, which meant which stood for combat recruit of war. So if you were new into the battalion, you were a crow bag. And then that was what they used to say to me. You know, shut up, crow, know your place. And I was never like I didn't. I, I bashed against it. I fought against it. So I think yeah. So coming out, mate. How was that? I was coming out of the forces. Was that? Was that? Uh, imagine that was a massive transition. That was a massive change. As you said, you were in the forces. You got so many different friends, and then all of a sudden, people turn their backs on you. Um, you've lost this job. So what? You went what? Back to your mum's. Yeah, effectively, my tail between my legs. Um, I remember my uncle. Excuse me. He said to me. You know, uh, he looked at me and he said, Elliot, you're such a disappointment. What did you do that for? Um, you know, I was very ashamed, felt very guilty. Um, so, yeah, it was a real tough time. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, yeah, again, quite vividly, I c- cried myself to sleep through shame and guilt for, I don't know, bro, it must have been six months and it felt like 60 years so six mm. months was you taking drugs at this point still he- heavily what cocaine yeah any other drugs C- cocaine and alcohol i was out every other night getting wasted oh, but that's expensive man surely yeah now that's not a cheap that's not a cheap addiction is it really no so every every other night you was out drinking drinking and, and cocaine yeah. What? How old is you at this point? Twenty-five. So you're twenty-five, yeah. Do you know what, bro? Like the amount of just respect to everybody. Just looking through some of the messages then on on your live video, man. You got some great people on there, you know. You yeah, really, some beautiful people, right? Oh, some great people, man. Honestly, do you know what? It's so much needed. That level of empathy and just, do you know what I mean? Just it's so much needed. We live in such a shitty place sometimes where people just at each other's throats I feel like even like how you start the video and you just say you know this is a safe space for everybody like it's such a big thing yeah you know and how you vulnerable you are or like you just show and you just you're yourself man however you're feeling in that moment you show and I think people respect that you know when you said about like um, whether people would want to watch you or not people respect real man yeah you know it's mm, bro it's um Mm, there's an addiction specialist called Dr. Garber Mate, and mm, he teaches me on YouTube. Excuse me, sorry. Mm, he says that as addicts, mm, we tend to point the finger at drug and alcohol addicts and say, you're an addict, you're dirty, or you're not a nice person because you take drugs and alcohol, right? And in, Instead, mm, we don't get to look at our behaviours with addiction to consumerism, um, the latest handbags, the latest sports cars, the latest mm. watches, hats, clothes. Mm, so mm, what he says to me subconsciously through his 
TEDx talks he does all around the world and stuff, is that he says that with addicts, why? It's not why you're an addict. He says that we should be asking yeah. addicts. It's it's what happened to you. What what are you missing? And it's just like you said there, bro, which triggered my thoughts, is that when I come on live to do my d d daily life of an addict, I like to say to people, this is a safe place, safe space, a safe environment, because if you're an addict like me, I need more, not in a selfish way, I need more love than ever before, because Dr. Garbo Marte teaches me that with a lot of his addicts he said what's interesting is that just because you've gone through trauma doesn't make you an addict he said what's interesting though is if you look at every addict they've all of them have, have had trauma where they've missed something they haven't got that love from somewhere in their in their life so for me to go live and become vulnerable it takes a lot of courage at the same time though i am motivated by the person out there who god bless them bless them they don't have the courage yet and how will they get that courage if they can't see someone else talking out and getting vulnerable like social media is a great place for you know like dating or um, showing people your best life, as they call it. Highlight reel. Right. Well, bro, what what about the real stuff? Like, I mean, really getting real. You know, so, like, um, I do some modelling, which is cool, right? At the same time, though, I, I, I have a perception of what a model would be. And that's your fact. This nothing. You're, you're sat next to one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it's, this no, is true. the same thing, though, bro. Right? Like, I thought how cool it would be. I was really excited and still excited about doing this podcast. And I thought people will see. Like, I watched your motivational videos on Facebook. I'm like, wow. You know, I am really inspired. I think. You know, I remember that one where I shared it where you were into the phone, you're going, let's yeah. make history. Yeah. I'm like, this guy's just, it just sends tingles. And then I think to myself, how did he set that all up? Like, did he speak to any kids beforehand? Like, it's, that's why I would but like bro, to. But like, for me, it's like, you, you see me on stage or even like today to a certain element of it. I, I still need my quiet time. I'm still quite an um, introvert, believe it or not. Does that make sense? Yeah. You might see me on stage and think I'm... And, and a lot of the time, it's not an act, but I just see myself as the vehicle to go and deliver what I do and my experiences and what I've been through and my knowledge um, and things I've learned along the way because I, I want to make a difference, but I'm the vehicle to do it. So sometimes I, I separate the speaker cam to who I actually am. And what I mean by that is I'm just a vehicle to go and deliver this stuff. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's not whether I enjoy it, whether it's not. I know that I can make a difference. I know I can make a change. But at the same time, you can have Enzo, you can have Dave. They both know me well. And the other, I'm, I'm not a negative person, but at the same time, I'm not a positive, positive, positive person. I'm, I just keep it honest and I keep it real. Yeah. And that's why I think I can go into a, um, a primary school, or I can go into a prison, or I go into a wide range of different places, and the impact is somewhat still the same because I'm just being honest. Wow. I'm being myself. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Um. Back back to where we started. Are we filming? 
Are we filming? Uh -huh. There you go. Back to where we started. I said it was a deep question. I said, why? Why do you feel like you? Why do you feel like you got so heavily involved in drugs and alcohol? Why did it? Why did it get to the point it did where you was going out every other night? So, um, I have been in recovery, brother, for a little over 20 months now. It's so, I had a long time, but at the same time, it's not in, when I look how long I was addicted to alcohol and cocaine for 22 years. And um, if I think about what I've learned in recovery, uh, again, Dr. Garber Marte is a, an addiction specialist and I labour on this thing uh, quite heavily where I like to really pick apart my brain and understand why it is I'm an addict and what I've come to understand today and it might change bro in a year's time you know and my therapist says that's okay you know if your ideas and things change all the time at the moment from what I've learned is that my brain whatever normal is I have no idea of it so at the same time I know that I'm not my brain is uh, is geared in a super sensitive way so if, um, if I'm messaging someone uh, uh, over uh, social media say it's a girl um, when I feel attraction it's super attraction if I feel resentment towards someone which I don't get so much today because I have a recovery system in place at the same time uh, I can feel super resentful so uh, all of my f feelings and emotions are amplified and I didn't realise this bro I remember being in school at no, 13, 14 and I went to my tutor who was a great guy and uh, he was ex-army interestingly enough and I walked up to him and I burst into tears and said no, I feel that everyone's staring at me I feel that uh, that uh, somewhere along the line, I'm, I'm, I just feel, I don't feel right. I feel different to everyone else. I don't feel better than, I don't feel less than. I just feel like an alien. And he said to me, Elliot, you're not the first person to say that. And son, you won't be the last. I've had lots of people come into my office, kids, and cry and break down. So I just thought, bro, that I, I was the same. In actual fact, I wasn't. I was never the same. And even today I feel, I don't know, I can't explain it, I just don't, like a, my a therapist broke, broke it down for me quite simply one day, and he said it's called the disease of addiction, Elliot. He said what's interesting is if you break the word disease down into two syllables, it's dis-ease. So I've always had a dis-ease with my surroundings, my environment. And I'm going to go a little bit deep now, bro, because I'm it's going to it here. And that is that it's like, it's like I feel. And I've always felt like I'm trapped in the matrix. Like the trees, these walls, that power board, you know, you guys, not you guys, not people. It's it's the environment, cars outside, um, the block paving stones that make up the road. It's also everything's so systemized everything's so locked in and I just feel like uh, like I want to break free from it like there is a, there is I don't know whether 
it's a, a paradigm that I have in my mind, or uh, my psychologist says that I have different paradoxes in my head. I just feel that, like you said at the at the beginning of this podcast, uh, I closely relate it to fear, not of dying. I don't fear dying. I fear running out of time. I fear I fear running out of time because I don't know. I've been locked in this way for twenty two years, locked in alcohol and cocaine addiction, and now it's like, wow, I'm in recovery. And all of these old behaviours that I was taught and told, you can't do this, you can't do that, you were five foot, nothing elite will never amount to anything, men shouldn't cry, men shouldn't show emotion. All of these things I've taught, they're all gone now. Well, if they're gone then, like, who who, the, who am I? I have an identity crisis where I'm now uh, getting to nurture that 13-year-old child. You know, back then who started to take drugs at 13 and was emotionally and mentally stunted through the smog of alcohol and drugs. Now I get to reach back to him and now I'm looking at his life and thinking, what am I doing here? I don't understand my purpose. I don't understand why I'm supposed to be doing, you know, life on life term stuff like going to the supermarket and shopping for food, washing up, doing clothes washing. Like, I just, I wouldn't like to be doing any of it. I don't know... I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And at the same time, then, when I do things like this, it's like, wow, this is what I would like to be doing. So many people, me included, I looked at my life and it was about what I wanted, what I was going to be. I was going to be a boss. Oops, sorry. I was going to be a soldier. (laughs) I was going to be a father. And I looked at all these things as they define me. Well, it's not like that today, Cameron. Today I don't have things that define me. Uh, it's uh, Oscar Wilde. Uh, I have a uh, a cover picture on one of my Facebook profiles. And it says about verbs and nouns. And he says that he is not an actor. He is not an actor or a writer. If he thinks of himself as an actor or a writer, he then locks himself into uh, this way of thinking and then he calls it and says, this will inevitably become your punishment. He said if he thinks of himself as someone who can write or someone who can act, then he can do anything and he doesn't know he doesn't know what he's going to do next. And I like that because I think back about what I've done, where I've been. And I've always thought I need to show someone who I am. I'm a father, great father, I'm a soldier, I'm a boss. In actual fact, I suppose if I look back at it now, what I'm realising by doing stuff like this with you and doing my Facebook lives is that it's my journey. That is that is who I am. It was never I was a soldier. It was never I was a father. It was never I'm a model. None of that stuff matters. It's about who I would like to be today. N- n- not what so yeah deep <laughs> that's decent though man and that's strong I think because we do get wrapped up so easily in identity and, and stuff like that you know and it holds so many of us back even people who get stuck in the, the, the rat race of life man right. you know for me I couldn't think of any not to knock anyone 
But I think very similar to you, believe it or not. And at the same time, I couldn't think of anything worse than just doing a nine to five, being stuck doing something you like. Oh. Just the, just the same. Some people need it, right? But for me, it's not. It's not the way my mind works. Not the way I work. Um, if I went to go and get a nine to five job now, I reckon I last a week and a half, max. Yeah. Um, but that's why I've kind of created something. What your mum said is. What your, what your mum say when you was younger is you this is life now you got to do something you don't like doing for the rest of your life. I think f that man. That's not that's not me. I'm not willing to live like that. Yeah. Um. I'm not willing to live like that. So you come into say your late twenties and stuff, and I guess you're still heavily involved with drugs, alcohol. Where was your head at when you was doing this? When you was in it, did you know it was wrong, or was it just something you've done? Because you said you mentioned you had a nice house, you had a business, you had people who was working for you. Did it become something you just you could operate on all this drinking drugs, and you that's just how you operated, and how did you operate at that point? That's is exactly bro how it was. No, I didn't see any different. Um, I suppose I always thought I knew that alcohol and cocaine would be a part of my life, and I felt it was very restricting. Um, I always was you know sniffing like now. <laughs> Yeah. Always sniffing, blowing my nose. I, I always looked very gaunt, very pale, very pasty. Um, I was always seeking outside affirmation from women, um, you know, which I'm not proud of. At the same time, I understand why though today. Um, I was always seeking outside affirmation from, from loved ones, from my mum and dad, from uh, best friends to say, look at you, well done, you're doing great. Um, so I remember... Um, my daughter being born. I remember being born, and uh, how is how old's your daughter? She's she's eight. She's eight. She'll be nine in January. So I've seen her on some of your Facebook lives. Um, we get into that, but she's eight nine. Obviously, that must mean you was what twenty seven, twenty eight, maybe, maybe a bit younger. Where was you at as far as financially? Where was you at with the business? Where was you at? in general like what was that whole situation was you with the mum or was it just a, a fling or how, how did that all how did that all look so um her mother and i had been on and off okay. um for uh for about four years was she aware of your addiction yes okay yeah yeah she was aware of it for sure uh, at the same time, though, you know, uh, we both came from, I identify anyway today, we both came from backgrounds of heavy drinking. Okay. So she was a drinker, I was a drinker, I used cocaine, she didn't so much. At the same time, she, I didn't realise and I didn't identify myself as an addict. I just identified myself as everyone else, just like to go out and just have a good time. Something you've done, just something you've done. Right. So, uh, and then Lola was born. I remember, I remember it vividly. A friend of mine, we had, or my baby's mother, she had a baby shower. She had a lot of presents brought around and stuff, obviously for Lola and for her mum. And my, a friend of mine gave me a book, and it said on the front, "Parenting for Daddies." And I opened it up, and on the front, on the inside of the hardback, it said, "Are you worried about being a good daddy?" And I was like, well, yeah, obviously. And then I opened the next page and it said, stop, you already are. And I'll never forget that because I remember, you know, Lola being born. And I know I'm not perfect. I have been the, the best 
dad. At the same time, I was besotted with her from the day she was born, and I have been besotted with her. Uh, and so, you know, she, her mother and I, through me working on a construction site, using alcohol and cocaine regularly, um, over that two year period where Lola, you know, went from being a baby to sort of two, three years of age, we moved over to Gloucester and my addiction accelerated. I was very, I was very unhappy at home. And I suppose, bro, do you know, I thought about it the other day and I never really give it much thought. Um, and that was that I was in a very abusive relationship. Um, I, I was comfortable in a sick way. I was comfortable um, in that abusive relationship because all of the ideologies that her mum had about around what a man should be, I felt were right. So when I would show emotion, she would say, what are you crying for? Yeah. There was a time where I remember taking off Lola's nappy, my daughter's nappy. Um, my, you know, her mum, um, you know, when we were together, she came into the living room and she looked stood back and she went, what are you doing? And I said, not changing her nappy. She went, men don't do that, what are you doing? I was like, if I would like to change my daughter's nappy, I will change her nappy. Yeah. And that's just wrong. That's you know, That's just sick. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the... That wasn't her fault. That's just the way she was brought up around what men should be. Anyway, so I wasn't allowed to show or I felt I wasn't allowed to show emotion or feelings towards my partner. So you can imagine then that I, my addiction was accelerated because because I, I was in my mind. I couldn't tell anyone about how I felt. At the same time, though, brother, I didn't realise that I couldn't talk I because I didn't think men did talk. Mm. So... Yeah. So being completely ignorant, um, and what somebody would possibly say, was your daughter not enough for you to stop taking cocaine and drink and getting out of that cycle of things? Or was it the fact that you just didn't even recognise that it was actually a problem in that particular moment? I think, bro, that's like an awesome question because people, and I do, and I don't worry about it because worry is bred from fear and fear isn't real. At the same time, though, I am mindful that people will watch this and people who are not of their own doing, are they are ignorant, though, not in a, in a malicious way, I mean. I mean, ignorance, like you said, ignorance is bliss, right? People are ignorant to the fact that they think you have a child this disgusting Elliot that you take cocaine and alcohol and you have a little girl is a little girl not enough for you and that is the ignorance mm. because addiction addiction brother from what I've been taught in recovery and what I've learned addiction doesn't care if you're a barrister if you're a police officer if you're a soldier in my case if you're a businessman, if you're a high-flyer corporate sort of person, if you're a motivational speaker, if you're a camera crew guy, if you are someone who suffers with mental health, like me, who doesn't have any titles or anything, it doesn't care who you are. It will it will take everything from you. Well, it ha has for me, sorry. And it took... And I remember thinking, looking at my daughter, thinking, you know, I'll, I'll always love you. At the same time, your daddy does cocaine and alcohol. And actual fact, bro, that reminds me. I remember my mum. She once said to me, what do you think's going to happen, Elliot? 
when Lola comes of age and she realises that you do alcohol and cocaine, what would you say to her then? And I looked at my mum. I can't remember now exactly what I said. At the same time, I can remember feeling, oh, well, it is what it is. What do you mean it is what it is, bro? You know, she, you know, as I looked at my mum and my dad, they were my heroes. I hope, you know, in some small way that Lola looks at me in that light. I think you'll be surprised, man, honestly. The amount of courage and the things you're doing right now, it, it, it's a, it, it makes your story so much more deeper, man. And do you know what? Like, I think you'll be surprised how much more respect and love that Lola would have for you be open and be honest and share your vulnerabilities because you're also giving her a space to do the same you know and it's not like you're pretending you're the best father in the world you're actually taking a step back and say do you know what i know i'm not the best father in the world but I, there's one thing i am and I, I love you and that love can never ever be broken regardless of the situation that love will never ever can be broken you love that girl and she's going to grow up and she's going to understand you better and that whole what that whole experience is going to bring you closer together even from what i've seen on the lives already it seems like it already has does that Thanks, does that kind of make sense bro. the the worst thing you could could do as a dad or a man i think is pretend that it wasn't there it didn't exist pretend that you was the best father pretend that you was constantly there pretend that you were something that you wasn't not and actually instead you're taking a step back and goes listen and I think all parents probably need to do it anyway, right? Listen, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I wasn't the best father. I made mistakes, um, but I've learned yeah. from it. And one thing I've always been is I, I'm now, I'm constantly in my daughter's life. I'm going to always be there. I'm going to always be there for her. And regardless of the mistakes I make in the future, because there will be some, I'm still going to love you. That's not going to change. Yeah, I mean, like I, do you know, my honest brother, like I, I I like to think that my way of thinking around expressing my feelings and emotions is a good thing and I found that in recovery it's been an amazing thing because it's unlocked unlocked a lot of stuff in my brain at the same time I'm very mindful though brother about Lola and there's that thing in my mind where it says be careful because you knew if addiction from what you, from what you know about addiction, Elliot, and if you look back at the fact that your addiction was accelerated because you felt that you were superseded into this father role, um, at the time, I didn't know, notice it as a father role. At the time, I felt like, wow, my mum sees me as her best friend. I'm, I'm on a level playing field. I'm an adult now. What I would like is for the same thing to happen to my daughter, where I start talking to her and becoming so vulnerable and so real that it brings her up to my level. What I would, what I hope is happening is that by becoming vulnerable about talking about my emotions and feelings is that, is that I am coming down to her level. I'm not bringing her up to my own, coming down to hers. I'm able to say, hey, like an eight-year-old to an eight-year-old, this is how I feel today. How do you that's, feel that's today? That's what I was going to ask you, because when you said about bringing her up, then obviously then it was like that cycle again of, right. that's what I was going to, but then is she going to miss certain elements of being a child? child? So I love the fact that you said you're not trying to bring her up, you're trying to come down and meet her at, as an eight versus eight type of yeah. thing. 
Um, what does she make? What does she actually? Let me ask you a question: Is your dad still around? Was he? Has he been around for like the last ten years, or not really? Or what? Was you addicted to drugs and um, and drink when he was still around? Like, how how did that look? So uh, today, uh, I would like to say I love you, Dad. I love you lots. Um, and I look at it in a way that now that my dad wasn't around for those 22 years, um, especially for the first 16, where I had no contact with him whatsoever. Um, from the age of? From the age of sort of 13. To the age of 30 ish. Yeah, had no contact with him. And um, it's a long time. It's a very long to time. To go without a dad. And, uh, or a daddy, as I like to call it today, because that's me connected with my inner child. You know, and at the same time, I see it as a blessing, though, Cameron, because I've done a lot of damage with my real mum in active addiction and alcoholism and a lot of stuff that I'm yet to make amends for and apologise for and say I'm sorry and that's going to be a super emotional time when I first meet her at the same time mum so you haven't seen your mum for a while no I haven't seen her properly for about four years five years fuck man Um, but who you was then surely going to be different to I know you're still like recovering you're still going through the whole process but surely you're probably doing what she's always wanted you to do right or no she popped up on one of my lives the other day did she yeah holy shit and um you was live and she popped up yeah I know right go on explain and uh how weird first she said uh, there's my little Elliot and uh, so I remember her you know what she said to me Elliot I like and love are two separate things I will always love you I don't necessarily always like you and that was when you know, I was in the thick of addiction and um, you know that hurt because she was my my best friend, my role model. And at the same time, though, she, I remember her also saying to me, "I oh, know, not saying to me, it was through a friend." She said to one of her friends um, when we were out one night drinking. It was a birthday party for someone, and one of her friends um, had come up to me. And she was absolutely plastered. This lady was. And she started to tell me about the conversations that she was having with my mum. And apparently my mum had said that I was really aggressive, really violent. I don't know where Elliot gets it all from. And it was only like a snippet. And I think then that my mum had saw her friend talking to me, sort of pulled to one side, and the conversation was stopped. At the same time, I always remember thinking, wow, so you're telling this to people Mm. about how you feel about me. You haven't told me this. At the same time, though, maybe she had tried to, bro. Because I was so aggressive and violent, there was no way of talking to me. Yeah. 
So anyway, I, you know, going back to it, I suppose, yeah, it's a blessing that I didn't see my dad for 16 years because I'd done so much damage to my mum in that relationship that in the end she had no choice other than to detach herself from me because I was aggressive, volatile and violent and I couldn't see any sense. I wouldn't let, I wouldn't listen to anyone, I wouldn't talk to anyone. The addict kept me isolated. And so then when I found my dad six years ago, maybe seven years ago now. You found him. Yeah, I found him on Facebook. I properly started to connect with him and talk with him. I hadn't damaged that relationship because I didn't know him. So my dad caught the back end of my addiction for the last sort of four years, five years. At the same time, because I didn't see much of him and I was like a, not not an egotistical way, like a high flyer businessman, I didn't ever really have conversations with my dad. If I did, it was very much, look at what I've got, how much money I'm getting, you know, you know, it was all this egotistic, him. right? All this egotism and all this, you know, people pleasing, um, and all these character defects. What I found in here was that luckily, I didn't sever a relationship with my dad, my daddy, because I didn't have one to begin with. So he's only really known the last four years, especially the last two years of my addiction, but, and now I'm recovering. But could you argue that it might have not even happened if your dad was in your life in the first place? So, you, like, yeah. I feel like you're still taking a lot of blame for things, bro. And there is still, like, an element of res- you have to take some responsibility at the same time. We all have to. But at the same time, like, I don't know, man. I just feel... I don't know your dad's situation, but it's so easy for dads just to walk out of their kids' lives. And for mums to pick stuff up. Does that make sense? Imagine like how hard. No wonder your mum had resentment. No wonder your mum had, um, she felt like it was a massive challenge for her. No wonder she might have hated your dad. It's because she's just been left with three kids, bro. Yeah. With everything. That's, yeah. that's fucking hard, man. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? So like, you're, you're like, you have to give yourself a bit of credit, man, at the same time, you know? And then for me, like, I, I've got certain opinions about my dad, man. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not going to go into too much now. But my goal is, do you know what I mean? I learned what to do, like, some good things for my dad, and I learned some bad things. And I just know now I'm going to be a different dad and a different parent altogether because of that. I'm going to respond differently because of that. Does that make sense? But I don't want you to think, oh, you didn't ruin the relationship with your dad um, because he wasn't around. It's, it's, it's not you, bro. It's not you. Does that make sense? Maybe you needed a father figure there. Maybe you needed your dad there. Maybe there was a deep-rooted issue where that was what caused some some of this. Who knows? Yeah. I, I think one thing what I like about today is that we just, we're, not, we're not pretending we got the answers to anything. But at the same time, like, I don't know your relationship with your dad. I'm not trying to, cr- like, criticise your dad. But we, we got to look at elements like this, you know? Yeah. And it must have been hard for your mum. It must have been difficult for your mum. Yeah. But at the same time, your dad missed all of that. And he, sh- in my opinion, he should have been f- there with you through it, fighting with you through it. Yeah. Even if you was aggressive, or even whether you, whatever it was, yeah, like, as a dad, that's still your, your, your son at the same time, you know? 
You can't tell you can't tell me regardless of what Lola goes through, you're not gonna walk away at the same time. Because that might have been an easy option you're not going to, bro. You're not. Because of who you are. Yeah, I think you know, like I uh so my recovery, you know, it teaches me today to be open minded. And I suppose uh would like to say thank you for that, bro. Because no, but it's true. Like you're, I feel like you're taking the blame for your for, from your dad. Like for your dad, you're taking the blame for something your dad's done. Okay, your dad didn't do the drugs. Your dad didn't do the alcohol, whatever. Let's move that to a side for a minute. But right now, you're giving your dad second, third chances for different things, which is fine. But still, don't pretend like he should have been there for those fucking sixteen, seventeen years because he should have. I think, you know, bro, if I'm honest... He was a 13-year-old boy, bro. 13. Without your dad, like, somebody you've been close to, somebody you've seen with every single day, somebody you flipping love, just walk out your life, bro. Like, come on, man. Give yourself a bit of, like... Give yourself some credit, bro. Yeah. Does that make sense? You have to. Yeah, I just... I don't know, you know, like, um, like, I agree, and, like, I uh, understand. Tell me if sure. I'm wrong, I'm, I'm open to, tell me if I, uh, no, I'm wrong. not at all, bro, I think, you know, like, I've, uh, and I have picked this thing apart for the last 20 months of my life where I've been in recovery. Why wasn't my dad there? What was so bad that he had to leave? Why was my mum so angry? Um, why was my mum so defeatist about my dad why this why that what do you know something mm. Mm, uh this is what we call life right and if i think about it i can dwell on my dad not being i can dwell on the fact that my mum wasn't the best promoter of my my dad at the same time brother all that's gonna do is it just upsets me and makes me super resentful because i'm an addict bro i don't feel resentment I feel amplified resentment. Mm. And resentment is going to take me back down the pub or it's going to take me back to my dealer. It's the most intense of emotions. So I think to myself today, I look at it as a blessing. I look at it as a blessing that my dad wasn't there for 16 years instead of, like you say, you know, well, maybe he should have been there. Do you know what, bro? My daughter right now, I went from seeing her three times a week driving up to Swindon and back. That's eight hours a week driving. So now I see her once every three weeks where her mum drops her down to see me. And I'm, I know I sit with my daughter from Friday night to Sunday night. And I don't know what it's like for her. I know how I feel, though. And that is that I just, I've always said and always expressed, bro, that I don't love my daughter. I've never loved her. I am in love with her. Mm. I am in love with the thought of being her daddy. And at the same time, when I think about that, and I think about my dad. That's the blessings right there, bro. Why, why didn't he feel that way about me? Mm. Why didn't he fight? And then, so now I get to look at it and I sat down with my, my daddy. You know, I sat down with him, brother. And I asked him. When was that? About, maybe about nine months ago. Okay. When we got real. We really got real. And I suppose he felt that... Because even though, bro... Like, I can talk about my emotions and feelings. It doesn't mean it's not painful. At the same time, though, I have a programme. 
I have recovery. Mm. I have tools. I have people that encourage me. I, I t- what about my dad? He I doesn't have that. I like what you just said then. Uh, just because you talk about your emotions and feelings doesn't mean that it's not painful. And I think sometimes people online, they might see that actually and think like, do you know what? Because he's so good at saying how he feels, maybe the pain's disconnected. But actually what you said then, I think is so that's so good i think to actually see that even though you're expressing how you feel it's hard for you to do it and it hurts man so i think bro like you said i think then about my dad and and i asked him we sat down and i remember asking him saying why weren't you there what happened you know and he said unfortunately son the relationship between your mum and i it was so volatile it was so aggressive and it was um, it was so so uh, toxic he said your mum made it that difficult for me to come to the house he said that in the end he said for me he said I just felt it was better he said not to put you children through the pain of your mum um, you know creating uproar at home because your dad's coming to the house to get you you know, he said, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want to put you kids through that. And, you know, I used to think to myself, that's just a cop-out, bro. That, you know, that's just a, that's just the easy way out, right? Well, if I look at it now, and I look at how my relationship is with my daughter's mum, my daughter's mum is like that with me. Mm. When I came out of rehab, bro, my, my daughter would like to come and live with me. We would like to live together. Not that she doesn't like her mum, she loves her mum. She just would like to come and live with her daddy. And um, I remember um, talking to Lola and, you know, chatting to her about, or, you know, about why she would like to come and live with daddy. And she said, you know, that she just likes it better with daddy and she feels that she can be herself and that it's a more comfortable environment. So anyway, I then got in touch with social services. I got in touch with the school and with police, um, you know, with courts. And, and trying to, yeah, I did. I tried to manipulate a situation, not in a, not in a uh, malicious way. Tried to manipulate a situation where then we could help Lola to come live with me. Because, for Lola, I didn't want her. I didn't want her going through what I went through, bro. Mm. Like I have my daddy in my life, and my daddy's my hero. And I know my daddy doesn't love me. I know my daddy is in love with me. And that's an amazing thing to have as a child, I know for sure, because I had it. Well, then, gone. Now he's, well, where, what do you mean he's gone? What do you mean? Where is he gone then? Where's the love? Like, you can't just say that that daddy's gone. What Mm. does that mean to to an eight-year-old child? So, you know, I feel then, you know, that, is that, is that how she might feel? Because that's how I felt. And if it is, then I need to, I need to, I need to, somehow I need to stop that from happening. And I suppose if I'm thinking about it right out loud, the only way that I've been able to is by the, when I'm with her and I have my daughter, is getting real and getting vulnerable and bringing myself down to her level. And, and really connecting with her. So I don't pump her. I don't ask her for information about what she's doing with her mum. 
and it'll ask her about what her home life is like with her mum and then she feels like she'd like to talk to me about it. What I focus on is becoming an eight-year-old with her and saying, hey, how do you feel? What's your feelings today? What's your emotions today? We cried together on Sunday two weeks ago and she laid on my lap and I stroked her head and I said, let it out. It's okay to cry. She doesn't get that, I don't think, at her mum's. When she comes to me, she she can be vulnerable. Not that it's a bad thing she doesn't get her mum's. It's just different at her mum's. So what it means is that only because, just because I only see her once every two to three weeks for for a block of like two to three days, I try to keep that bond and make that bond as special and nurture it as best I can. It's not about the amount of time. It's about what I do with the time that I have. And that's why I hope to keep the connection. But So there's no manual, right? To life. There isn't, man. There really isn't. It's just, I don't know, man. It's just hard, isn't it? It's like, from what you said then, is I'm connected with so many different emotions as well, man. Like, being obviously 11 and my mum kicking me out and I was like my mum's little soldier, isn't it? Like, if that kind of makes sense. And then thinking, yeah. what have I personally done? Why did she not want me? Like, what? She didn't really fight for me after, do you know what I mean? And that's been like, I haven't seen her since. Um, and like, but it is tough, but for so long, you ask yourself, man, you like, especially when you look in the mirror and you see elements of your mum, you see you look a little bit like your mum or you might act like your dad. Um, it, it's, it's right, man. Do you know what I'm saying? For me, man, it's more like, you look at yourself and it's just, it's about like the, the realisation, yeah? That actually, do you know what? It's not, it's not a personal attack about me. When my mum done it, it's not about me. It's those. It's I don't know. I feel like, yeah, it might have been easier for your dad to do that. But at the same time, it's like it's not. It's a cycle of life, bro. It's what your dad's gone through. It's it's yeah. certain situations. What your mum's been through. And it's just, it just it just works, and as you said, it's not about being resentful. It's about it's about the blessings, man. And what's the blessings now? You've been you know you've been clean for a while now. Okay, not as long as you've been taking drinking drugs, but you've been you know you're doing well. And your blessing now is Lola. Your blessing is doing this. Your blessing is you don't know where your your next career move might be. You know yeah. you don't know definitely. Who who you're gonna help, and they're the blessings. I feel like sometimes we gotta look behind and understand things, um, but also not try and carry that weight of what's happened in the past on our shoulders, especially when it's it's carrying it from other people and what they've done. Does that make sense? Yeah. All you can control now is 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 what you're doing. Yeah. So what day did you wake up and say a change? Enough is enough. Was there a day? Have you tried and failed many times before? I was always waking up. I suppose in the last two years, brother, it was tough. The last two years, especially in business, there was always so much pressure. So it was your business? I had a group of companies in the construction sector. One was a recruitment company. Another was a groundwork, groundworking a civil contractor company, and another was a, a housing development company. 
we had uh, six fans, six fans, five or six fans, um, anything between 60 to 70, 75 people working for me at any one time. And then we were, I say we, my brother and I, not by blood, he's my best, my best friend, my brother, who I call my brother, we then formed uh, a, a housing development company that was just getting off off the ground I never never made it off the ground because of my addiction um, so I I know yeah again I just resided myself to a life of alcohol and drugs and just tried to it was like and I've heard it before bro where people say it's like trudging through treacle that is what my addiction was like especially the last two years and I was making movements in the corporate world um, with some big contracts and there was a lot of money I don't don't say it to be egotist or really don't and I just mean it you know for facts factually and I made a lot of money astronomical amount of money uh same time though it was so hard because I would use for three days on a bender and I would be hung over for another four so if I look at it now where was the time for business because that's seven days of a week it's gone and that's what happened in the last maybe I say maybe six to nine months was at my business it just it, it dived everyone started to walk away my clients then started to get sort of a gist of I had a problem loved ones were walking away from me clients were walking away from me people who worked for me were walking away from me I was starting to spend VAT money, VAT money, tax money, CIS money. Um, you know, I remember in the height of it, I had um, hired a Lamborghini. I got high one day, really high, and went up to Birmingham and hired a Lamborghini Hurricane Spider. And I drove it back. And I spent... Five days, no. I hired a Lamborghini for eight days. No, nine days, and it cost me just over £8,000. I remember driving this Lamborghini down the Stroud Road here in Stroud, and I was doing about 130 miles an hour. And my friend beside me, we were both off our faces on cocaine and alcohol, and he was filming me. And I took both hands off the wheel, and I went to my back pocket. Pulled out a wedge of twenty pound notes, which I think is about a thousand pounds, and this Lamborghini was a soft top. And I looked up, and he looked at me, and he went, "No," and I went, and just threw it all into the air, and just screamed with laughter, and 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 just tanked it. You filmed the whole thing. That is just, now if I think about it, that's where addiction took me. All my morals. All of my uh, sense of reality, it just went. And what's interesting, bro, I think about it, Dr. Garbo Mate again, he teaches me, he says that his patients say to him all the time, and he, he watches them, and they say to him that, uh, sorry, and, and it, he says about his patients, he says the contortions that his patients would go through just so they didn't have to be themselves, just for one day, 
that's what it felt like for me. Mm. And then it brings you back to this matrix. I just, yeah. So, what has been the physical and mental repercussions of doing drugs for so long? Has there been any? Yeah, massive. I lost mentally. Mm, I came out of rehab. Spent six weeks in a rehab facility. I came out of rehab six weeks clean. I have been six weeks clean in my life. And I was in this pink cloud. And I thought, wow, I have my life back. Now, it's, now, I, now I can hit the ground running. And it wasn't my journey. I have run my businesses to the ground so I need to go through liquidation I lost my businesses lost my cars Death. I lost clients and I got into close to half a million pounds worth of debt Fuck. I am now going into as that was business insolvency I'm now going into personal bankruptcy next week currently now yeah yeah uh, I have no money no, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I, I am in an identity crisis at the same time, slowly finding who little Elliot is. Physically, my brain, my GP said to me, I'm going to prescribe you sertraline Elliot. This was two years ago. I've come off it now. And he said, what it is, he says that when you ingest cocaine, he said, it goes up to your brain. He said, it opens up the floodgates. And all of your dopamine and endorphins are released in one hit. And that's where you get the euphoria. He said, because you've been doing it for so long. Unless you use cocaine or take alcohol, your brain doesn't know how to regulate it. So it locks it in. So I go into an increasingly, increasingly depressive state. He said, what surgery does, or what it did for me at least anyway, sorry. He said, when I took it, he said, if you can visualise a drip and tap, he said, your brain then lets out endorphins and dopamine throughout the day, which then balance my moods. Slowly, brother, over the last two years, I've come down from 100 milligrams of sertraline down to 30 milligrams of mitazapine. So my brain is recalibrating, and I'm getting, I don't have to, I don't must do, I don't should do. I get to live healthily today where I go to the gym. The gym is a huge part of my life. Uh, it releases healthy endorphins and dopamine. When I come out of the gym and I open the door, the fresh air hits my brain and I feel a million dollars. I feel like I've just taken a line of cocaine. And that is, I said to my GP about it, is that okay? Is that is that right to feel that way? And he said, that's good, Elliot. Your brain is reconditioning. So now it doesn't need cocaine to release. It's getting it through this, through connection with you, through and able to experience emotions and feelings and talk about how I feel. It allows me to feel safe. It allows me to feel like, you know what? This guy's really cool because he's, he's helping me to be able to talk about it. That releases dopamine too and endorphins. I feel good about myself. I go to the gym. That releases it. I eat healthy food. Healthy food for me, I don't know about anyone else. If I eat chocolate all day, or if or if I eat apples, drink water, and a, and, a, and a nice protein diet, the next day I feel terrible after eating chocolate. The next day after a healthy diet, mm. I feel great. And then I look at my recovery. 
talking as much as I can about how I feel, releases endorphins, about my emotions, allows me to connect with my family and my relationships. They aren't just what they were, bro. They are so rich now. I have less time with my friends and family. At the same time, they're becoming more intense. That releases more endorphins and more dopamine. So I'm getting my kicks and my hits healthily. It is, you know, yeah. So, um, what would be the difference then? Say if you was on cocaine now to the old Elliot and you were sat here, what type of response would I be getting from you now? Even if we were just having a general chit-chat, a bit deep. Well, I would probably be looking Enzo and Dave. Dave? Yeah. Sorry. I'd probably be looking at Enzo and Dave. And doing this with my thumb, pointing at you and saying, what is this guy on? Is he taking drugs, guys? And what is he doing? Talking about his feelings and emotions. And I'd be <laughs> displaying passive aggression. Mm. And I'd be laughing at you, not at you directly, laughing at you through these guys trying to get them yeah, on your side on my side and then I will be belittling you because you're trying to get to little Elliot we don't do that mm. and it's interesting because what I mean is, is that I remember talking about this in rehab and I still do it today I sh- don't do it as much when I say we don't do that what does that mean Elliot we what, what do you mean when we say we don't do that and what I mean is, is that the addict and little Elliot. So the addict has hold and he says, we don't let pe- 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 people in to little Elliot. Mm. We push them away. So, so not a very nice person. You said from the very beginning that I can ask you anything. Yeah. Um, and this, I, I got a huge amount of respect for you. And I, I was watching your live video last night. I think it was last night. And you really, really struggle to get your words out. Yeah. As if maybe is it a, I don't know whether it's a stutter or whether it's just your your mind trying to work. What have you always had that? As that have, is, can we call it a stutter? I don't really know. Is it a stutter or what is? It's a speech impediment. Okay, so <laughs> have you always had that? As it escalated as. As it because I've bro watching you last night, I fucking the amount of courage I thought you had. I'm not gonna lie, if that was probably me, say probably not now to be fair, but say a couple of years ago, I'd have turned that straight off. Or if I said some words slightly wrong, or I didn't do it right, I'd have probably turned it off because once again, I told you from the beginning, I was trying to focus on perfection actually over being real and yeah. what the actual message was. Yeah, yeah, like how 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 is all of that? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, so um, I never had it. What I found was that I, my therapists and people in recovery that I work with, um, you know, my GP, my psychologist now I have, my mental health worker, my support worker, have a lot of support. What I found is, is that I was self-medicating. I always had anxiety, bro. Brother, sorry. I always had depression. I always had self-obsession. I always had the disease of addiction. Where it, it, it amplifies all my feelings and emotions. So there's no reason why I 
took cocaine. So what happened was that when I came into recovery, I came out of rehab, I lost everything, and I had had what I used to describe as a mental breakdown. And it's not. They're called mental breakthroughs. And I developed anxiety. So I put cocaine alcohol down, oh. speech impediment, head tics, night terrors, a severe anxiety and depression all came to the surface. Wow. It's like an iceberg. You knocked the head off it and all of it came rising up and I was like, whoa, wow. whoa, whoa, whoa. That's crazy. So I... Then I remember, bro, bro, I came back from two weeks on an acute ward in a psychiatric ward called Wooten Lawn over in Gloucester because I was suicidal on my vlogs. And a family member had seen me on my vlogs. And she came over and she said, whatever you're talking about on your vlogs, she said... Whether you think you were suicidal, whether you think you may be egging yourself on, whether you think maybe it's real but you're not sure, or maybe you need to get a grip, or maybe that you need to think this or you need to think that shit, whatever, whatever's going on up here, she said, your behaviours are normal. Are not. They're not normal uh, to want to commit suicide. So she helped me. And that was my brother's mum. She took me over. When was that? That was only... Six months ago, wow. so I went into this uh, psychiatric ward. I completely lost my mind, and um, I was suicidal. You know, I was walking around my house looking for places to hang myself from, um, testing out, you know, uh, handles, seeing, you know, light switch fittings, uh, cable, see if it would take my weight, and all these things weren't normal, and. Uh, Anyway, when I came out then, I remember in this instance, this time where my mum and dad, bless them, so this is my stepmom, she's like my second mum, she is my second mum, she's amazing. They had, she had cleaned all my home, um, you know, out of the love and out of the love, you know, and nurture for me. Unfortunately though, what she didn't realise, no one could foresee this, was that when I came home, I hit a new level of anxiety. So what I mean is, is that I have a real thing around egotism. Like, I, I am so mindful of it because the addict, the addict feeds off ego and fear and aggression. Mm. So I don't like to put myself on anyone. I am, like you said, I've actually found out that I'm an introvert. Mm. So I remember walking in, bro, right, to my k k kitchen, and my dad stood in front of me, and my mum stood over in the corner of the room, and they're both, like, you know, fluffing around, you know, fluffing around me nicely, you know, like, do you need this, do you need that, da 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 and all I would like to do is get a glass from the cupboard and give myself a glass of water. At the same time, though, I couldn't bring myself to say to my dad, Dad, would you mind moving out of the way, please, so I can get to the cupboard to get a glass because my mum had cleaned everything and moved everything around so I didn't know where glasses were and then I felt doubly bad then for saying dad 
can you move out of my way? Like, who do I think I was asking my dad to move out of the way? These guys, my parents, had just took me to Wooden Lawn and been there every other day checking in on me. Now they've brought me all the way home and there I am asking them to move out of the way so I can get a glass. So then I start to lock up like this. And then I had an anxiety attack. So I said to Dad, I can't... Just give me a second. Walked around to the living room, sat on this very sofa to an anxiety attack for me, bro. What happens is, is that my stop breathing, everything tightens up, so my blood becomes deoxygenated, if that's a word. It's it's not oxygenated anyway. And I start to tense up. My whole body goes rigid, and then it sh- shakes. And then I'm literally then convulsing, and I have a fit on the floor. And that must have been horrible, terrible for my mum and dad to see. And at the same time, that's what it was like. Wow. So I'm con- conscious of time. How long have we been going, bro? Hour 40. Hour well, <laughs> so Let me ask you, man. What, what's next for you, bro? What's the blessings and what's next? What? <laughs> Then he's another half an hour day for this one, right? <laughs> so, uh. Dave hasn't fallen asleep, so that's a good sign, right? <laughs> I like what you do. And, uh. I w- w- would like t- to have the courage to go into schools, especially schools. <laughs> primary schools and secondary schools at the same time though I feel like everyone's got a different way of doing it right and I hear about this a lot people say which is really nice of them they say Elliot you know you'd be good you know some of my vlogs I did today you'd be great at doing what Cameron does you know I could see you doing that well there's a difference bro between a motivational right and inspirational they're two separate words because they mean two separate things I think to motivate someone, I would need to be, or identify I need to be, like you are, up there, on stage, projecting. I just don't, I don't know, I don't f- feel that I can do that, and I don't know whether or not it's because I can't do it at the moment, or it's because I feel that that's just not who I am today. I'm more, I think I'm more identifying myself is more of inspirational. So where I would sit on a stage and I wouldn't be able to project my voice like you would be able to. At the same time, just talk and get vulnerable with children and encourage them to talk about their feelings and emotions. And to be able to generate an income from that where then I can free myself from this matrix of where you need to get a 9 to 5 job because that's what you should be doing you need to drop this modelling stuff out of the way because that's for wusses and girls and that stuff will never come off that's what we call pipe dreams listen when you've got a hair like you got anything's possible mate. I'll, tell you that <laughs> I'll tell you that now that, uh, that hair is going to get you somewhere I'll tell you that now mate um, but yeah so there is no doubt you're you're still in in the middle of things. You've got the sort of financial side of things out. 
but at the same time you said you're at ground zero so one thing that you can be happy about is you're already on this journey right you're already building up a platform you're already getting experience you're already sharing and the ways you want to make money eventually in the future are more than possible man and if there's anything i could do to help whether you're not ready yet or whether you want to give it time i mean i'm always happy to help man like we're, we're taking over the uk scene i'll tell you that in schools if there's anything wow. you want to start at least getting experience i got some good groups i can even put you in front of now um yeah who would be good practice for you man at least wow. anything you know just and i think they'd really appreciate you so let's just have a conversation um and let's just start from somewhere you know even if it you went and it didn't turn out how you wanted to straight away it doesn't matter we grow and we learn and we go again you know but there's no point having eventually maybe that idea in your head and you might do it and you might not like it who knows yeah um but my man thank you bro honestly thank you, thank so you man thank you for your time um I don't really know what else to say. Dave, Enzo, what a podcast. I think that is the longest podcast we've had. <laughs> and to be fair, I was engaged throughout, man. I <laughs> Hopefully no other guests are watching this. That don't happen quite often, you know. Um, I struggle with my concentration and focus, but you, you draw me in and I just appreciate you for being honest, being open. Um and yeah, man, I feel like you've got some great things coming. Keep keep doing what you're doing. It is needed. Thanks. When you're having the lonely moments, when you're on your own and not feeling great, just from the bottom of my heart, and do you know what? Everyone on your Facebook lives, whatever, just understand that it is needed. And it's only going to grow, and you're only going to make a difference to a lot more people. But that's not from you being someone that you're not. That's by you being exactly who you are and expressing how you feel and so on and so forth. Make sense? Yeah. Anyway, guys... That is another episode of the Dreams Reality Podcast. <laughs> please, please, please do like and comment if you've got any questions or anything. We'll put all Elliot's links and stuff in the description box. But remember, <laughs> I'm not even going to end it on that. Just honestly, man, thank you. Subscribe, guys. And on to the next one. Peace. What's going on in the news right now? It's absolutely everywhere. You turn on your phone, you go on social media, you go on all these different things, right? It's absolutely